Hi, everybody. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for this year to be over. So I got an email this week from a colleague of mine, a longtime friend of this congregation, Rabbi Michael Kahana, who leads Congregation Beth Israel just up the street from us. He was reaching out with some questions about how Trinity was preparing this week to offer space to people who were being evacuated by wildfires. But Michael and I ended up swapping a couple stories, generally kind of checking in with one another on how our congregations were holding up in the middle of all the craziness. He wrote, we're getting ready for the high holidays at Beth Israel. Rosh Hashanah is on Friday night. He says, we filmed all the services over the course of several days. We are editing them now. And then he says, I think I slept through that class in rabbinical school. It has been the hardest thing I've ever done. And I knew exactly what he meant. I knew he didn't mean the technology. Although this morning, I think, boy, the technology actually kind of is the, the thing. So Rabbi Kahana continues, today we called members of our congregation who live in Clackamas County. Everybody we spoke with was okay. Many have their cars parked, just cars packed just in case. He says it's so evocative of the Holocaust where my mother told me she was given half an hour and a limit of 20 kilos to pack. Boy, I'm struggling with people's perceptions of the protest and abuses of state powers. It is not an easy time. Those words have stuck, me, stuck with me this week. It is not an easy time. My heart broke a little bit for my friend as I read his email, his determination to keep going in the face of an entirely unfamiliar reality on what should be one of the most joyous times of the Jewish calendar, the blowing of the shofar, apples dipped in honey to signify a sweet new year. Our friends over at CBI are struggling in many of the same ways that we are struggling here at Trinity. Maybe we're not just marking time until we can get back to normal. I think many of us are afraid that this is the new normal. This is our 27th Sunday without worshipers in the cathedral. First time we've streamed it from a cell phone. The plan initially was to use our normal six camera system and mics and have eight singers out there. We're actually all set up in the cathedral nave with mics for eight singers. Uh, but because of the smoke, because there's a lot of smoke here in the cathedral, we dropped that plan. Uh, so here we are, seven of us, eight of us, nine of us, marking the ancient words, doing the ancient liturgy, reading from the ancient texts, pretending that everything is normal. We heard about Joseph and his brothers this morning. We heard Paul on church conflict and what to do about it. We heard Jesus' strangest parable, the strangest one he ever told about forgiveness and torture if you don't forgive. We've got a lot of men behaving badly, and it's mostly men, I have to tell you, in these stories. Men who are taking out their anxiety and their fear and their anger on one another in sometimes in acts of vengeance, occasionally acts of mercy. If you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, uh, maybe you heard this in 10th grade English or you've seen the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical about the guy with the amazing Technicolor dream coat. The brothers, remember, are the guys who trafficked Joseph, their younger brother, into slavery. And the way the story goes, back in the book of Genesis, many years after they sell their brother down river and they tell Joseph's father that he was killed, the family all reunites in Egypt. Joseph has risen to be like chief of staff for the king of Egypt, basically. The brothers have come begging for food. They don't know he's there. They don't recognize him at first. But Joseph recognizes his brothers and he begins to weep. He throws his arms around them. The family is reunited. Everybody moves in together and lives happily ever after. Or so we would have thought. But the text that we just heard this morning, the text that Pam read for us, is kind of like the epilogue 
to that tender family reunion scene. This takes place many years after this forgiveness reunion has happened between Joseph and his brothers. And what we learn from this story is that decades down the line, Joseph's brothers are still pretty antsy. They've already been forgiven. They've been reunited with the brother whom they betrayed. It's almost like a, like a psychological illustration of Jesus' principle from the parable that forgiveness is not a one-time thing. It's something that you do over and over again. In the parable, Jesus says 70 times 7. That's symbolic for, like, forever, right? In the Genesis story, the reason that forgiveness happens over and over and over again is not because Joseph is hanging on to a grudge, unable to forgive his brothers. No, it's because the perpetrators of the crime, his devious brothers, cannot seem to accept his forgiveness even decades after the fact. So after Joseph's father finally dies, right, where the story picks up this morning, they come back, the brothers come back to Joseph, and they basically lie to him. They say, our father begged you on his deathbed to forgive us once and for all. That's a completely bizarre claim. Joseph's father had seen the whole family reunited. He's witnessed this whole forgiveness thing, everybody moving in together. So the relationship has been restored, right, as far as Jacob, the father, has seen. But the brothers are convinced somehow that Joseph is about to turn on them now that their father is dead. And so they use Joseph's father's memory as kind of a cudgel to manipulate Joseph into giving them what they want. It's a weird little detail at the end of the story. At a certain level, it feels very, very honest, very recognizable, right? The forgiveness is not just hard on the victim. Sometimes forgiveness is harder for the perpetrator. That seems to be the psychological principle that's at work here. But even this naked psychological manipulation by Joseph's brothers, even the weaponization of forgiveness, which is kind of what they're doing here, even that latest trick is not beyond the bounds of Joseph's love for his family. He refuses to play their game. Instead, he, he turns to them and he articulates one of the great principles of Hebrew scripture, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. That's the place that true forgiveness comes from for Joseph. It's not a social obligation. It's not a way of playing nice. It's not the kind of forgiveness that you and I were maybe taught on the playground, right, where you were made to hug the kid who hit you in order to show that, you know, there's no hard feelings. No, this is a deeper kind of, of psychological and spiritual release that Joseph is offering to his brothers as if to say, you can let go of this if you're able not because I forgive you, but because God is already at work spinning your dung into gold. That principle is not a, it's not a shaming one, right? You really ought to be able to forgive and move on. The principle is actually something a little more sophisticated. It's a theological claim about how God works in human relationships, that God is able to work something beautiful even out of human brutality. It's a little bit different from saying God's got a plan and everything's okay, right? What Joseph is not suggesting is that God caused his brothers to commit a heinous crime in order to accomplish a greater good, right? That would suggest a kind of, a kind of manipulative puppeteer God who you know, sets people up for falls in order to make stuff happen. And that's not actually the way that Hebrew scripture depicts the God of Israel. Joseph's point is a little more sophisticated than that. Joseph allows room for human intent, what you intended for harm, he says. That's another way of saying that, that human beings can be pretty awful to one another. For whatever reason, right, we seem to, to get off on cutting one another down, eating one another up, giving into our worst instincts, saying and doing things that would never pass muster on a well-managed preschool pre playground. 
I don't know about you, it's the kind of, kind of angry, vitriolic adult behavior that I feel like is on the rise these days. I don't have any empirical evidence for this, but I feel like, like where I would maybe get maybe a couple vitriolically angry emails a month, it's like they come every day now. Some days it feels like everybody out there has got an ax to grind. And when I go a little bit deeper, I wonder if part of what I'm seeing out there is really not so much what I'm seeing out there as what I'm seeing in myself. I feel like my fuse is shorter than it has ever been. A couple weeks ago, at our Zoom staff meeting, six or seven of us were here at the cathedral. We were struggling with an internet connection that was giving us a lot of trouble. And after this morning, it's kind of like, it's coming back to haunt us. We're having a lot of difficulty with the internet at the cathedral. That's the, the message of the day. So this has been going on for months. And in the staff meeting on Wednesday, I had kind of reached my limit. And I threw a little bit of a temper tantrum. I am sorry to say, Katie is laughing right now because she saw me do it. In my defense, it had been a really long day and it was only 10 o'clock in the morning. So I got myself under control. We put together a Zoom task force because that's what you do when the dean throws a tantrum. You form a task force, we're Episcopalians. But I felt this thing, I felt this thing rise in me. This, this anger, this frustration that this little thing that has been plaguing us since March hasn't been fixed and right next to that, anger, that really biting anger, there was this urge to lash out and hurt somebody. It was like a, a primal, almost childlike instinct. I wanted to hit. I wanted to hit. I needed somebody else to feel my anger as viscerally as I was feeling it. And the, this instinctual thing like kicked into my body. I don't know if this is a guy thing. I don't know if it's a white thing or a human thing. But all of a sudden, it was like I was back on that preschool playground, and I wanted to hit somebody. I was mad. So I used my words. I was biting and vicious and sarcastic and a little snarky. And as soon as I saw Katie's face on the Zoom call, I knew, oh, I overstepped my boundaries. This thing, this hurting instinct, I think it's like one of the most pernicious after effects of pandemic and wildfire and political dysfunction at every level of our society. I see it all around me and I see it in me. I have learned too well how to be cruel and sarcastic and biting. I've gotten addicted to that, that momentary little thrill of the cutting word. And social media has only served to ratchet up the volume on that and dial down its consequences. I don't have an easy solution to this rampant anxiety that is burrowing its way through my newsfeed, my family, my congregation, my heart. I do take some solace in Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis, what you intend for harm, God intends for good. That's a principle that I hang on to when I feel like maybe somebody's coming for me or when I feel myself lashing out with cruel words, it feels good to hurt somebody sometimes. It feels good in the moment. There's a, a satisfaction, a sense of getting my own back. But I know too well, maybe you do too, the feeling that comes right after that smug sense of satisfaction, the sinking sense of regret and embarrassment and guilt. The ancients called that sinking feeling after we throw our tantrum, they called that compunction. 
And I think compunction is one of the most valuable things we've got going for us right now because compunction sits right next door to compassion. And there's this shift when I take a tiny little step away from my rage and find something that connects me emotionally to the target of my anger. Sometimes I have to do a little bit of work to find that compassion. Once or twice in my life, it has come to me like, almost like a vision, this, this momentary flashing image of the target of my anger as a child, as a terrified kid. I think that's who we all are. We're all of us kids, duking it out on the world's playground, falling down and skinning our knee and longing to run into our mother's waiting arms with a kiss to make it better. And we know mom is not there on the park bench anymore, making sure that we're all safe and playing well together. We're not safe. We're not playing well together. We're making it up as we go along. We're whistling in the dark. We are out here on our own. But not alone. No saint on earth lives life to self alone. That's how our hymn this morning summed up Paul's words to this angry, fractious, infighting Roman congregation. No saint on earth lives life to self alone or dies alone. For all in Christ are one. If another member of the church sins against you, Jesus says to Peter, you forgive not just seven times, you forgive 77 times. That's a symbolic way of saying you don't stop. It goes on and on and on. I don't actually think Jesus means that as a commandment. You must forgive forever. I think he's almost saying it with like a sigh of recognition. This is the brutal truth. This is the way things are. As human beings on the world's playground, we never stop forgiving. That kind of forgiveness is not a social nicety, right? It's not, not just kind of playing well. He's, Jesus is talking about forgiveness from the heart. That's something that's almost impossible for human beings. Only by God's grace are we given to these flashes of compassion, the ability to see our enemy as a hurting child, the grace to connect and feel empathy for somebody who has wronged us, perhaps profoundly. So knowing that I am, at best, an imperfect forgiver, doesn't let me off the hook, right? That's, it's because of this ancient principle that Joseph articulates in Genesis. What human beings intend for harm, God intends for good. That asks me to recontextualize everything that I do and everything done to me, to take a step back from my strongest emotions, whatever they may be, and understand that there is so much going on in this world that I don't see. I mean, how, how does that phrase go, walk gently? for everybody you know is fighting a hard battle these days more than ever, right? We, we, all, we all slept through that class in rabbinical school. We're operating in the dark. There's no training. There's no playbook. We're making it up as we go along. But we're not doing it alone. And that, that has to be key somehow. There are all these other kids out here on the playground with us. And when we stop hitting one another, when I stop hitting you, I discover that you are just as scared of all this stuff as I am. You're just as frustrated. You're just as exhausted. And every so often we get this glimpse into what God is doing behind all of the pain and the pouting. I think, I think God is up to something really interesting. What I intend for harm, what you intend for harm, 
God intends for good, for my good, for your good, for the good of my brothers and my sisters, for the good of people I will never meet. It turns out there is a, a divinity that shapes our ends, or a few of them how we will. For that, I am giving thanks this morning more than maybe any other morning. Thanks be to God that even in the smoke-filled vastness of an empty cathedral, even here, talking to people on a cell phone in the front pew, people who are hunkered down in their homes, dealing with all kinds of stress and anxiety and pain. Even here, even now, in this weirdest of ways, we are not alone.